Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I once had a conversation with someone about the Ten Commandments. And they were fairly convinced that they kept most of them, or they kept most, if not all of them, with only the occasional hiccup here and there. They weren't being antagonistic or self-righteous or anything like that. They were just going by the bare text. Have I murdered anyone? No. Have I committed adultery? Nope. Do I really want my neighbor's stuff? That guy. Nope. So I cracked open the small catechism with this person and we walked through the commandments and how they're much more than just a simple checklist of do's and don'ts. And we read Luther's explanation of each commandment, how it has something that it both prohibits, so don't do this, but something that it also promotes. Do, do this. And by the end of our time examining each commandment and gaining more of an understanding of how those commandments bear on our lives, this person looked at me and said, I guess I never read the fine print. That was a great way of putting it. Jesus teaches us in his Sermon on the Mount that there are multiple layers to the ways in which God's law interacts with our lives. And in our gospel lesson, he names four specific situations and how God's law addresses each one of those. But he does so to correct the way in which the scribes and the Pharisees understood and taught God's law. And thus he begins each section with this. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, Jesus isn't bringing us new laws, new stuff to do here. Rather, he is interpreting correctly for us what was already there in the first place. He's not teaching anything new. He is simply teaching it truthfully. And as he does so, he shows us the, the various uses or the various functions of God's law in the life of Jesus' baptized followers. So today, I want to share with you the three uses or the three functions of the law, and hopefully we'll deal a little bit with each section of what Jesus teaches. Now, why am I doing this? Because this is so critical, so fundamental to our understanding of how God's Word works. For many of us, this will be a trip straight back to small catechism class, whenever you are a, a wee lad or a wee lass. Um, for some of you, it will be the first time that you've ever heard this. Or maybe for some, it's the first time in a long time. Now, if you plan on joining our adult membership class at any point, this is one of the first things that we talk about as we sit down with a small catechism. It's the three uses of the law. So let's begin with the first use. The first use is called the curb. The curb. Or that's the street name, at least. See what I did there? Because what does a curb do? A curb keeps you in the bounds. It keeps you from going off into a ditch. It messes up your tires. Right? So here's, here's what, the, everybody say curb. Here's what the curb of the law does. It manages your external behavior for the sake of your neighbor. It keeps you from killing your neighbor the curb of the law. 
It does not address the religious convictions of the heart. It simply shows us what we should avoid doing if we want to survive in this world. Everyone is normed by this use of the law because it's woven into the fabric of creation. This is just the way that the world works. The curb of the law is what keeps society working and in decent order. Have you ever heard someone say this? This is one of my favorites. (coughs) You can't legislate morality. You ever heard that? Well, people only say that whenever there's laws on the books that they don't like. That's, that's why they say that, right? But the truth is that you can legislate morality. That, that, that's what a law is for. But it's only to an extent, right? For example, it's good that we have a law on the books that says do not murder. Right? That's good. If we did not have a law that threatened to punish murderers, what would happen to murder rates in our society? They would skyrocket. So this is an important function of the law, to be sure. It's, it's the curb. But when we as Christians don't have the other two functions to go along with it, we end up with this very shallow view of what God accomplishes through his law, which was the case with the scribes and the Pharisees. See, what Jesus is addressing in his correction of their teachings was their tendency to completely externalize our obligations to God's commands. They thought that they were being obedient to God simply by avoiding murder. They thought that they were being obedient to God, or they thought that they were being faithful to the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and that that only meant staying true to your spouse externally, without any thought given towards the lustful intentions of the heart. They thought that divorce was permissible in just about any situation as long as you issued issued her the proper certificate. They thought that oaths were no big deal so long as you didn't get God involved in that process. And Jesus teaches otherwise. But you could see that these guys wanted to be obedient to God's law strictly on their terms. So points for them for trying, but... External conformity to God's law will only get you so far. And that brings us to our second use of the law. So that's the curb. The second one is called the mirror. We know all too well what a mirror does. Especially that one that sits in your car. is right there. That's the first thing that you see whenever you get into the car. You look at that thing and you go, oh, I need to pluck that, 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 that. Oh, I got a pockmark there. Right? That's what a mirror does, or a good mirror. It shows you who you are and what you look like. And whenever the law gets held up to us, it reflects something back at us that we don't like to see. And this is where the move from external obedience to the law that is required in the first use, this is where we move now to the internal matters of the heart. This is where we look under the hood and address the issues. It's why we squirm in our chairs whenever we hear Jesus say that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever looks upon a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery. 
It's why we grow uneasy when he gives it to us straight about the sinfulness of divorce and the Christian obligation to keep his word in all circumstances. Because we all know that we've violated one or more of those, perhaps even very recently. The mirror. We're going to put an asterisk right here next to the mirror. Because this use of the law is the one that we as Lutherans emphasize the most in preaching and teaching. Here's, um, here's an excerpt from one of our confessional documents. It says, The chief office or force of the law is to reveal original sin with all of its fruit. It shows us how very low our nature has fallen, how we have become utterly corrupted. The law must tell us that we have no God, that we do not care for God, and that we worship other gods, something we would not have believed before and without the law. In this way, we become terrified, humbled, and depressed. We despair and anxiously want help, but see no escape. If that sounds kind of awful, because it is. And it's not because God's law is awful, but it's because sin is awful. This is what St. Paul is getting at in his letter to the Romans. The law is not just given to govern our external behaviors, but also to reveal and expose the depths of our corruption and what's going on under the hood. Now, naturally, we don't like this use of the law. But as you wrestle with the conviction that you feel from Jesus' words today, I tell you, do not dismiss it. Do not attempt to soften its hard edges. Here's why. This is the Holy Spirit doing His work through the law in the most salutary way because, here's why, because he is preparing you to receive the gospel in all of its benefits. And that does not come without his work in the law. You see, while we still live in this world of sin and death, we carry our old sinful nature around with us. We call that the old Adam. And it's the old Adam to whom the law must constantly be preached. And the Holy Spirit uses this preaching to kill and to subdue this old man hanging around our necks. But then, as the scriptures teach, then there is always the reassuring word, the promise of the gospel. For the sake of Jesus' innocent suffering and death for the sake of his holy and precious blood for the sake of his resurrection and his session at God's right hand your sins are forgiven and will not be held against you but see you weren't prepared to hear that unless you first heard God's law this is what the mirror does But one more thing about a mirror before we get to our last use. When a mirror shows you that your face is dirty, do you then take that mirror and rub it up against your face to get off the filth? 
Of course not. It's silly, right? Some of you have been desperate and you've probably tried to do that, right? But this, we should never do that with God's law. It's not the law that makes us clean. It is the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners, our baptism, the absolution that is always in our ears, the body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. These are the ways that the Spirit makes us clean and renews us as God's people. That's what he's doing. Now, speaking of being God's people, that leads us to our third use of the law, which is really the emphasis that Jesus is teaching in our gospel lesson today. <clears throat> so we had the, the curb, the mirror, and this third use of the law is called the guide. Now, the easiest way to put this is that this is how God has recreated us through His Son, by the Holy Spirit, to live. So the law is not just about maintaining our external behaviors for the good of society. It's not about just showing us that we are poor, miserable sinners. Both of those are very true, with an emphasis on the second there. The law is not only addressed to the sinful nature in you that must be killed, according to the second use. It is now also preached to the new creation, the new man, the new woman that you are in Christ. Because you have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are now a new person with a new heart and with new obedience that flows from that new heart. Although we are unable to perform the law perfectly in this life because of the ongoing presence of sin, we nonetheless strive to do it, we actually desire to do it, and we strive to amend our sinful lives through, through repentance and faith. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be guided by God's law. So here's what that looks like. Having our sins forgiven by the gospel and having our guilt and shame produced by sin removed from our conscience through the absolving words of Jesus we can now hear the law of God and we can say with the psalmist, blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. In other words, we regard God's commands as something to pursue and as something to even delight in doing. Oh, that sounds kind of foreign, doesn't it? We actually want to do what God tells us to do because we are new people. In Christ. And as we do those things, we do so knowing that they are the habits and the attitudes of the new heavens and the new earth. See, this is what Jesus is teaching uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the ethic of the kingdom. He's talking about you, his disciples, his followers. This is what he has called and redeemed you to be. This is what he is recreating you through the gospel to actually be and to actually do. It's the heavenly kingdom that is present on earth here and now amidst God's people. So when we practice these things, we are simply rehearsing or we're actually getting used to what eternity is going to look like with our Lord Jesus. So rather than approaching God's law with grudging submission... 
we actually relish doing it because it means that his kingdom is coming. It means that his will is being done among us as we pray constantly in the Lord's Prayer. So for you, a redeemed and forgiven child of God, what does it mean for you to honor and obey God according to the fifth commandment? How can you quickly resolve disputes and disagreements, especially with those of the household of faith? How about the sixth commandment? How can you pursue chaste living? How can you pursue a sexually pure and decent life? How can you honor and esteem marriage as the gift it is from God? How can you, as a baptized, redeemed child of God, let your yes be yes and your no be no? And as you consider these important questions from Jesus' teaching, you no longer must fear God's wrath on account of your sins and your failures. Why? Because Jesus has taken them away by his cross and by his empty tomb. And as you've been born again in the waters of baptism, you have now a freed and a renewed will that walks in step with his kingdom. That's who you are. And as a disciple, you have in Jesus a master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. So as you continue to study, to read, and to inwardly digest God's word in your Christian life, I pray that you would keep these uses of God's law in your mind. The curb, the mirror, and the guide. You guys got that? The curb, the mirror, and the guide. All right. So may they be useful to you in knowing exactly what the Holy Spirit is up to as you read God's word. But ultimately, may they cast a brilliant light on everything that Jesus has done to save you and to redeem you by his keeping of the law and by his death in our place for our failure to keep it. And may the gospel that I've announced to you today give you all the strength and the power that you need to do what God calls you to do. In the name of Jesus, amen.